0: So Jesus, please help us to understand the scripture that we are going to look at and help us to live it out and walk in its power. In Jesus' name, amen. If we didn't make mistakes, you wouldn't like us so much, right? Uh, Just before I preach, I do want to take a minute to mention men's fraternity. This is something that we haven't done for a couple of years, but when we did it last time, there were two things I heard over and over again from men, but also from women. They would stop me in the store and they would say, thank you. Everything is better, at home, at work, everything. It is a program designed to help us men be better husbands, boyfriends, fathers, whatever. And people would stop me and say, thank you. The second thing I heard from men was, man, if I'd had this when I was in my 20s or 30s, a whole lot of things would have been better. So Jesse Rice and I are going to do it over again. We're going to start October 3rd. This time around, there'll be a morning session and an evening session. No excuses this time. Um, And if you did it last time, you can come back. Different things will hit you differently. Uh, If you've never done it, especially if you're in your 20s and 30s, be there and bring a friend. Uh, it's, It's Christian, but it's not so churchy that even unchurched people can get a lot out of it. So we need to know to help us plan who's coming in morning who's coming in the evening so after this service if you could go to the lobby if you're planning on attending let us know you're coming and let us know what service you're coming or which one service which one you're coming to morning or evening that would be really helpful but bottom line is october 3rd be there sermon i was talking to a friend a couple of weeks ago and i asked him how he was doing he said eh life's kind of flat right now and I said, really, because I've seen your Facebook posts. I mean, water skiing, going out to eat, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing, it looks great. And he said, oh, yeah, my Facebook life is awesome. It's my real life that's the problem. And I thought, that'll preach. Like, wouldn't it be great if our real life was as cool as our Facebook life? Except in my case, because my Facebook page is boring. Although someone did point out recently that I had 666 friends. 666. 666 not a pastoral number so i added a few this week we are doing a sermon series called revive about how jesus breathes new life into things that need reviving so let me ask where do you want what do you want to see where do you want more life in your life where do you want your life to go from you know real life to facebook life metaphorically speaking And even if things are going great right now, maybe there's no problems. But, you know, with Jesus, it can always be better. Marriages, even good ones, can get better. And joy in life can get even deeper. Or maybe there are some things that feel a little lifeless. A marriage, a career, a health or a financial issue. Or maybe things are okay, but life's just kind of, eh. And you'd like it to be more than you could ask or imagine. What would you like to see revived? Well, the passage that we sort of read from Joel gives us some principles for revival that I, want to, that, I want, that I think are helpful. Now, the background of this passage, you've got to understand, is a giant swarm of locusts has devoured the entire land. And if you, do, if you don't know about them, locust swarms are devastating. Uh, throughout history, they've been just terrible plagues. In the uh, Settlers in the Midwest in the 19th century would describe clouds of locusts so thick it was dark. You couldn't see the sun. And, and they'd stretch for hundreds of miles. It would take days for them to pass through. And when they were done, there's literally not one green thing left. It was a moonscape. So, in an agrarian economy like Israel's, you can imagine this is a catastrophe. Worse than a stock market crash. I mean, their economy destroyed, food was scarce. They need reviving. So, Joel comes along and gives some principles about how God revives those things in our life that need to be revived. And the first is this. Revival moves inside out, not outside in. Joel says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Now, if you were an Israelite, this would not be very satisfying, right? I mean, the the economy's devastated. You can't provide for your family. And Joel basically says, get closer to God. That's what That'll fix the problem. Just get closer to God. And if you'd been there, you might have said, yeah, 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 that's nice. But the locusts, okay, the locusts are the problem. Fix the locusts, God. Don't talk to me about getting closer to you. Fix it. And that's what we do, isn't it? When life's not going how we want it, we say, you know, the problem is out there. We tend to think the solution is if God revives something out there. It's my spouse that's the problem. Fix them, right? And then our marriage will be awesome because I am. It's my job. I need a new one. It's boring. It's my health. It's my finances, you know, whatever. It's out there. And God cares about those things. And I'll get to that in a minute. But we tend to locate the problem out there. If God fixes it out there and God says, no, 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 no. revival starts when I do something in here. Sort of like the story of an elderly man who was recovering from the flu and his wife of 50 years brought him a bowl of soup. And he said, Ethel, man, you have always been there for me. Like years ago, when I was in the veterans' hospital after I'd been wounded, I mean, you were with me, and, and you were with me when we lost everything in that fire, and then when we were poor, I mean, you stuck with me then. You know what I think, Ethel? I think you're just plain bad luck. <laughs> and that's kind of, you know, that's how you, you, you're the that out there. That's the issue. But revival starts first with the inward battle to refine our hearts and our attitudes and our character, and then it goes outward to the battle out there. Think about every great adventure story. The hero always has to fight the inward battle first before fighting the outward battle. Right? Lord of the Rings, Frodo has to face his insecurity before he can destroy the rings. Star Wars, Luke Skywalker has to master his temptations to the dark side before he can defeat Darth Vader. Not to mention deal with all of his family baggage. Right? And and if you think you got problems, okay, at least your dad's not Darth Vader, all right? Although some of your problems you don't know my dad. To be a hero, the inner battle comes first. Then they can master the outer battle. And the external problem they face, whatever it is, is just the occasion, the excuse that God uses to force them to do the inner battle. The theological word for that is sanctification, the process by which the Holy Spirit uses the circumstances of our lives to shape us into who God created us to be. In fact, in this passage, Joel even says that God sent the locusts which raises a lot of questions. You know, does God send bad things, blah, blah, blah? And I've talked about that in other sermons. Let me briefly say here, no, most of the bad things that we experience, the suffering is not God punishing us. It's just a result of living in a broken, fallen world. But occasionally, when we are headed on a destructive path, as Israel was in this text, God will want to get our attention for our own good. And to do that, God will touch our mind. I mean, we'll know we're on the wrong path. God will touch our conscience. We'll kind of have God, hear God saying, I got a better way. But if those don't work, for our own good, to turn us around, God will touch our circumstances. And that's what's going on with Israel. Now, again, most of the bad things we encounter is not God sending that our way. That's not God. It's just broken world. But even when God doesn't send the hard things in our life, he uses them as tools to shape us and make us who he wants us to be. And personal revival begins when we embrace that inner battle. Instead of saying, no, fix that, fix that, fix that, revival starts when we go, okay, God, fix this, fix this, fix this. And use the circumstances to refine me. I was talking with a friend this week who's bored in his job and longing for a bigger challenge. Plus, he's had some run-ins with his boss. To make it worse... Over the last two years, he's turned down two opportunities to move on to a bigger job at the time because he thought they weren't right. But now in retrospect, he thinks it's because he was just afraid. So he said, you know what? I've got a problem. I want more, but then I run away when I, when I can. I've I, I got to figure out why I do that. So for him, revival does not start when God gives him a different job. Revival starts when he does the inner work to figure out what he's afraid of and become a braver man. And he's seeing the hardship in his job right now as God's tool to shape him and to mold him. You know, it's God's way of sanctifying him. And if he sees it as his friend, not his enemy, it changes his attitude and he can have more joy. I'll give you another example. Let's say you've got a difficult person in your life, someone who just really bugs you. Okay? Don't think, this person bothers me. Think, this person sanctifies me. Okay? It's just a different way of looking at it. Revival begins on the inside. Second principle, only God can do it, so we have to ask him. Now, this should sound familiar, because two weeks ago, I gave you three practical steps to revival. They were ask Jesus, ask Jesus, ask Jesus, who is God in the flesh. But my predecessor here, Dick Leon, said, you know, you always have to hear something 17 times before you remember it, so this would be time number four. And I, and I know it sounds simplistic and unsatisfying. We want something practical to do, right? So then we can do it on our own. And if it's any consolation, it is hard for me to keep making this point. You know, I don't want you all walking out of here going, man, he didn't give me anything practical I could apply to my life today, except Jesus. Right? But I have become convinced through prayer, through observing my own life, that the biggest roadblock we face to the revival of marriages, revival of health issues, whatever it is, or just wanting life to feel a little more exciting is that we are not willing to fully lean on Jesus, make Him plan A. There is no plan B. And the result is we are working hard to revive things in our lives and we're getting exhausted. And at best, all we are getting are human results, which are fine, but not the kind of, whoa, I can't explain that any other way, but Jesus kind of revival that we really need. Because, guys, we can do a lot of things. We are capable people, but one thing we cannot do is breathe life into something that needs it. That's Jesus' domain. I saw a Facebook post a few months ago from a friend of mine. We're actually not We're Facebook friends, not real friends, but he was <laughs> one of the 666. Six, six. And it was on a Saturday at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon when I'm working on my sermon. I call it the panic hour. How? I'm running out of time, which is why I was looking at Facebook. <laughs> and his post, his post said, Hey, all you pastors out there, it's not too late to throw out your how-to sermon and instead just talk about the power of Jesus and his love for us. I did not like that. So I went back to writing my how-to sermon. But I think he has a point. Too often we pastors say, Here's a good idea. Try it. When what we should be saying is, Here's a person named Jesus. And he's the only one that can change your life. He's the only one. Now, I think we should offer practical how-tos in church. I'm going to do that in a minute. We're going to keep trying to do that here. But the first practical how-to is to throw yourself completely and fully on the power of Jesus. Well, how do I do that, pastor? I don't know what that looks like. Well, this passage gives us three specific things. (laughs) See? Here's the how-to. Three specific ways that we can do that, all starting with the letter R for revival. Isn't that handy? First, Joel says, repent. Now, that word carries tons of baggage. Images of preachers yelling at folks to convert them. That's not what it means. Repent simply means, the word simply means to turn around and go a different direction. It's a directional word. It's about what you're pursuing. So based on how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what you worry about, what are you pursuing most right now? Is it Jesus or is it career or accolades or money or something like that? Revival begins when we pursue Jesus more than all those other things. Not because those things are bad. Lots of them are good, but they don't bring life. A pastor named Tim Keller writes, if you don't live for Jesus, you'll live for something else. If you live for career and you don't do well, it'll punish you and you'll feel like a failure. If you live for your children and they don't turn out the way you'd hoped, you can feel worthless. Your career doesn't love you and it can't die for your sins. Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, will forgive you eternally. We pursue lots of things. Promotions, money, accolades, new kitchens, right? Whatever it is. But the thrill doesn't last very long. What if we put as much energy into pursuing Jesus as those things? How? By taking time. It comes down to time. Time to pray, even just short prayers throughout the week. Time to read scripture. Time to connect with other Christians who point us to God. And do that not for fear that God is going to blast us if we don't, but knowing God's character, as Joel says, is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. He does not lecture us when we return to him. He says, welcome home. Which brings me to the second R, Joel says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Jews used to tear their garments as an outward sign of repentance and mourning, but often it was just sort of this ritual kind of rote deal. And so Joel is basically saying, don't just go through the motions of religion, you know, go to church, say a few prayers, but open your heart to Jesus. When you pray, ask him questions, and then listen to the thoughts that pop into your head. Some of those may be Jesus talking to you. When you worship, focus on the words of the songs. They're powerful. Sing it directly to the Lord. Let, you know, let the music move you emotionally. You know, Joel is basically saying, don't just go through the motions of religion, feel something, Presbyterians. Right? Dig deep down. You can do it. <laughs> this summer I was at a wedding, and it was the first time I'd just been to a wedding in probably 15 years. I'm always doing them. And I've done so many, I've got the ceremony memorized. And toward the beginning, the pastor asked the bride and groom some questions which are basically, you know, are you sure kinds of questions, really? <laughs> And then the pastor asked the congregation, will you support them? If so, say, I do. And everyone says, I do. So the pastor was at the congregation part and asked the question, and I belted out, I do, really loudly. Problem was, nobody else did. Turns out, this pastor had an extra set of questions that aren't in the ceremony that I do, which are questions to the parents. Do you give your consent? I'd answer the parents' questions. I mean, people four rows up turned around and looked at me. Worse, it was in this church filled with many of you. More embarrassing, even still, it was Rich Leatherberry, our mission pastor's daughter, getting married. I'd answered Rich's question. My wife leaned over and said, stop trying to crowd in on Rich's moment. Another person leaned over and said, you always have to be the center of attention, don't you? I think he was joking. So that night, I I was still so embarrassed, I couldn't go to sleep. And at at one point, I actually made an involuntary sound. I went, oh. And my wife said, yeah, it was pretty bad. (laughs) That's what just going through the motions can do to you, right? It's embarrassing. So Joel says, open your heart to Jesus. Be passionate. You know, a lot of times we hear people say, oh, I just need more balance in my life. No, you don't. Jesus doesn't call us to balance. Revival doesn't happen moderately. Luke Skywalker couldn't defeat Darth Vader, sort of. Revival happens when we are fully, completely, passionately pursuing Jesus. So try praying some of these prayers. Lord, help me make you my top priority. Lord, give me a passion for you. Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Repent, rend your heart, and then the last R of revival is restoration. Let me read you, one of the most helpful promises in all of Scripture. If you're having health problems, marriage problems, a career that's fading, or even if life just kind of feels, huh, nothing's wrong, it just feels kind of, huh, God says this, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Wherever you're at, God will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. That is, he will bring good out of it somehow, some way, someday, and he will make it matter. And even if it's not that dramatic, right? Like your life is fine. It's just like, it's just sort of, but it's kind of flat, right? It's nothing really wrong. It's not, you know, it's not as dramatic as the years the locusts have eaten. You might even want that. That at least would be interesting. You know, it's more like the days the locusts have nibbled. You know, something like that. Just death by a thousand paper cuts. Even in that... God can bring passion and renewal and revival, bring you a future and an end to shame. He says that one twice. He says, you'll know that I'm with you. And many of you have experienced this. It's one of the most amazing supernatural feelings you can have. When you experience God with you, it drives shame away. It drives fear away. It drives depression away. It revives you. There's a man in our church, I'll call George, who several years ago was struggling with some depression and an addiction to pornography. And he said, I was convinced that I could overcome it with 99% me and then just a 1% assist from God. Or maybe 10%, but mostly me. Well, what he found was that he could break the habit for a while, but then it would come just rushing right back. So one night he prayed, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. Do whatever it takes to free me from this. Such a dangerous prayer. Next day, he got laid off from his job, and he's thinking, this is the answer to my prayer? And it took him a few days to get over the shock, but but then he felt kind of this eerie sense of peace creeping in. And he said, I couldn't figure out how, you know, I couldn't figure out how unemployment was going to be helpful, but I had turned to Jesus, and I had to figure he was going to use this to help shape me. See, seeing the external battle as the excuse, the tool that God uses to transform him. And, and, and because of that, he was able to have joy. In fact, he, when he went in to clear out his desk, his co said, how come you're smiling, right? And he said he ended up comforting them, even though they were the ones that still had a job. Well, the first, a little bit later, he, he went on our men's retreat. And the first night on the men's retreat, he had a series of dreams, each one growing progressively darker. And in the first dream, he was in a store that sold crafts and antiques and knickknacks and stuff like that, which he correctly interpreted as a symbol of hell. Then in the final dream, he was in an elevator with people that looked friendly but turned out to be demons. And the elevator started to crash, and he he screamed out, in the name of Jesus, be gone. And then he woke up, and he was screaming that out loud in his cabin. I don't know how his cabin mates felt about that. And then he said that this, uh, this peace came over him again, this eerie peace. Next day, he realized the theme of the retreat was spiritual warfare and that the dreams were spiritual attack. And that whatever God was doing in his life, it was scaring Satan, and so Satan was throwing everything he had at it to derail it. He spent the rest of the summer praying, reading scripture, getting closer to God, doing the inner battle. You know, and there'd be moments where he'd stop and he'd think, hey, I'm unemployed, I should be scared. And sometimes he was, it wasn't perfect, but mostly he had peace. Well, at the end of the summer, he thought, you know, I really do need to get a job. And so he doubled up his efforts. Eventually, he found a part-time job that months later turned into a full-time job. But the real issue is the things that were plaguing him, those addictions, are gone. Yeah, he's still tempted, but he's found a way to overcome them. And he's a lot closer to Jesus. He has more joy in his life. But mostly he says this, I learned that overcoming problems isn't a matter of doing 90% of the work and then asking God for an assist the rest of the way. It was only in complete surrender and admitting my weakness that I was able to find perfect freedom in Christ. He allowed Jesus to fight the inner battle and transform him. He leaned fully on Jesus' power. He repented and made Jesus his top priority. He rent his heart, not religious ritual, but opened his heart to Jesus, and God repaid him for the season the locust had eaten. And he was revived. In some ways, that story doesn't even make sense, right? Like, if you're unemployed, you should not spend months on end getting closer to Jesus. You should find a job. I'm not saying we should sit around and wait for Jesus to just drop things in our lap. But what I am saying is that if we want to experience God's revival in some area of our life, we need to turn to Jesus, not in moderation, but make him our top pursuit. You know, starting next week, these sermons are going to get real specific and real practical. But one more time this week, I just want to say the real recipe for revival is turn to Jesus. And say, Jesus, help me pursue you. Make you my top pursuit. And Jesus, this thing, only you can revive it. So here it is. And just keep praying that. Because his promise is sure and his promise is true. He says to you and he says to me, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. And you will know that I am with you. And you will not be put to shame. And I will deliver you just as I have promised. So Jesus, help us to stand in those promises, believe those promises, move in those promises, even in those seasons where we don't see what you're doing. Help us to turn to you. And Lord, we will give you all the glory for all the results because you and you alone are the author and source of all life. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.